All right, so let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I want to look primarily at verses 3 to 10. But before we do that, I want to get a bit into pop culture. Because for the last two months or so, this parking lot of this church has been very active. Vehicles are mysteriously appearing on all levels of this parking lot. And it is not because all of a sudden the citizens of St. John's have overcome their fear of the hill is that's called Mount Calvary out here that you guys drive up and down every day. No, rumor has it that it's about this game called Pokemon Go. And it is amazing how many cars. And I have been told that this parking lot is a gym for this game. All right, and so people come here, and Steve Daw has all the information on this. Now, that is not an indictment of Steve Daw. I have no idea if he has the game, if he plays it. He's knowledgeable of it. He has plausible deniability. I have never seen it on his phone, but he seems to be very knowledgeable of it. And he told me that the reason these vehicles come here is so they can come to fight each other. That they're, in fact, the story goes something like this. They come here to find this hidden foe, this Pokemon, and they hide, they fight him. And I've seen this because I saw a lady sitting out here and she's just doing this on her cell phone. And I couldn't understand why. And Steve tells me it's because she's poking the Pokemon. Then if you defeat your enemy, then you get to hide your Pokemon for the next victim that comes along or the next one that wants to wage war. And so they come here day, all day long, all into the evening. Every time I've been in this building, someone comes in, drives me crazy because I think someone's coming to the church and maybe wants to know Jesus. But no, they want to play Pokemon. Yes. But then as Steve was telling me this, I thought, what a great sermon illustration. How many folk come to church to fight each other? In fact, I heard a sermon over the last little bit where someone stood up in a pulpit at Grace Baptist and said, he wondered, and I thought about this because this building has been here for a while, but this church has been in existence since I believe 1993. And ask yourself, how many, how many worship songs have been sung here since 1993? How many prayers have been offered up? How many people have met Jesus? How many fellowships have happened inside the four walls of this building? But how many fights have happened in here? How many disagreements or misunderstandings? How many failures where people have walked away in a huff or maybe smile on the outside but were raging on the inside? And so often, just like Pokemon, we come to church to fight each other instead of fighting for the truth or instead of fighting for holiness. And over my last three and a half weeks, in very open honesty to you, I have seen all types of people in these cars that have come up here, young and old, men and women in groups. And the funniest one to me was just this past week, a beautiful brand new Honda Accord. So these people were not poor to do. And the mom is out there, my windows were open, and I heard this kid freaking out of his mind. I mean, wailing. So I go to the window and I see this mom in the front of the car just doing, the kid is losing his mind in the back seat and she seems oblivious to it. And I thought, man, how often does that happen in real life? We get so fixated on something and yet other things are happening around us and we don't see it. As I said, I've gone on three and a half weeks of vacation and I'm going to be honest, if you can call it that, because I feel like I need a vacation from my vacation. I feel like I could sleep for two days. 
I've spent time in cars, on boats. I've been in homes, at weddings. I've attended a conference. I've been talking and walking and watching folks from all ages and walks of life. Over the last four Sundays, I've read books, blogs, and posts. I've listened to the news, and more than ever, I've noticed two things. One, we are busier than ever. And we're more consumed with consumption than ever. Getting what's ours, finding our way in our time and on our terms. But I've also noticed another thing over the last four Sundays. That we seem to be, for all of our getting and consuming, some of those unhappy, dissatisfied, searching, unsure, confused, anxious, and depressed people like never before. And it's funny, or I find it tragically funny, when the world gets it and we love to sing their songs. So back in the 70s and 80s, do you remember the Rolling Stones? It's hard to believe that that dude is still alive and still singing. But he puts it this way, satisfaction, satisfaction, because I try and I try and I try, oh, oh, and I try, but I can't get no, I can't get no. No, no, no. I can't get no satisfaction. Now listen to the words of this song, because this is profound stuff. When I'm driving in my car and a man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information, supposed to fire my imagination. I can't get no. Oh, no, no, no. Hey, hey, hey. What can I say? I can't get no satisfaction. Second verse is even better. When I'm watching my TV and a man comes on to tell me how white my shirts can be, well, he can't be a man because he don't smoke the same cigarettes as me. No, no, no. Hey, hey, hey. I can't get no satisfaction. There it is. Maybe Bono and the boys from YouTube said it best, though. I've climbed the highest mountains. I have run through fields only to be with you. Only to be with you. I have run. I have crawled. I have scaled the city walls. Said it was only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Tim Hawkins says this make a great wedding song. Imagine coming down the aisle. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's a way to get married. He says, I have kissed honey lips. Felt the feeling of her fingertips. It burned like fire. This burning desire. I have spoken with the tongue of angels. I have held end of the velvet. It was warm in the night. I have no idea what he thought there. I was cold as a star, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Doesn't that sum up the world? I can't get no satisfaction. And I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But I'm going to try. And I'm going to try. But I can't get no satisfaction. What the tragedy is, is that's coming inside the church. David Mathis, this past Monday, wrote an article for the Desiring God website titled, The Surprising Truth About False Teachers. And so I can't, you know, take his title. So I just said, false or true, the gospel is not a contract. Okay? But in it, he says this. The question is not whether you ever hear the voice of false teachers. You do. Probably every day. The question is whether you can discern which messages are false. If you watch any television, listen to any radio, or you listen to podcasts, keep on up with the news, or interact at depth with just about anyone in modern society, you are being exposed to some form of false teaching. 
Here's the thing. If you cannot identify any voices you hear as false, it's not because you aren't being exposed, but because you're falling for it in some way. So it's not about, are you being exposed to false teachers? The question is, do you know it? Can you hear it? Can you spot it? Now, as I said, I've been away for four Sundays. We're coming to the end of 1 Timothy. This whole letter is six chapters, but it's one letter. We've learned about the church and how we're to live and function as a church. And again, as I said to you, from one Sunday, I heard a message about false teachers from James chapter 4. Then I heard another sermon on false teachers at the conference I attended, taken out of Titus chapter 2 and 3. And Daniel's been preaching through 2 Peter, which is all about warnings about false teachers and false teaching. And then this is the passage I land on for my big homecoming. More false teachers. Now, folks, I just want you to know from the outset, I don't have an agenda This was not, when I came home, I wasn't, oh goody, I get to preach on false teachers. The truth is, in my flesh, I'd much rather love to preach a really warm and fuzzy message. Like I really would. Like, you know, something where you, uh, even though Mary's not here, Mary Bennett, Bennett, but where you, you know, I get a casual amen, I get some of you to laugh, I'd have a few funnies. We, when I, we, you know, we just get a, get, get a good roll going, a good rhythm. And you'd say, ah, Steve landed easy into his coming. No, you, you know, Steve, you've got to like step into it with 1 Timothy 6. I don't want to do that. I, I, I like to be liked. I really do. I want you all to like me. I love having a laugh. Ask Steve and the guys. But if I know that there's trouble, if I know there is danger, is it truly loving for me not to yell out, watch out, be careful, don't, don't trust that. If any of you watched any parent here, when we were with Nathan and Shelby, they have a beautiful big place where they have these campfires and we had this one big raging campfire and we loved it and was the only way to keep all the mosquitoes away, which by the way is one glorious reason to come back to Newfoundland because the mosquitoes and PEI are just nuclear dangerous. Um, they walk up to you, they tell you they're going to bite you and there's nothing you can do about it. And you just got to sit there and let them suck the blood out of you slowly. So you have these raging fires and we were sitting around there and our little nephew, who's like a grandson to us, Harrison, who is almost two, will be two next month, and he's, he's basically walking and he's an idiot on his feet. And how many times did we sit around there and grandparents were there and Deb and I were there and Nathan and Shelby were there and Harrison would come around and the first thing all of us, we were all in a ready state of fire alarm alert watching that boy around that fire. Why? Because we knew it was dangerous. And we knew he had no concept of it. He didn't, he just, it was shiny and warm and flickered and made sounds. And daddy was flicking wood into it. And uncle Steve was flicking wood into it. So why couldn't he flick wood into it? Even though he was ready to flick himself into it. And what made us loving, what made us caring was that we often snatched him from the edge of that fire and dragged him kicking and screaming and snotting and bawling from said fire. Now, if he could articulate himself, he would not say, Mother, I am so thankful for your wisdom that you are keeping me from this beautiful delight of a fireside chat. 
Just like if I say some things today about false teachers that hits home, some of you might feel the sting of it. But it doesn't mean I don't love you. In fact, it's proof that God loves you. And by God's grace, I love you. I want you to think about all of this. Think about infomercials when you think about false teaching. Those gimmicks sold late at night or early in the morning. What do they do? They all make it sound like this is the thing you must have to be satisfied or this is the only thing that will make sense of life. So I want you to hold on to that as we look to 1 Timothy chapter 6. But as we do, I want you to realize how powerful God's word is. 2 Timothy 3 says this, all scripture, not some of it, not most of it, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And here's why. That the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4 tells us even further, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Here's what it does. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and notice this, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why the word of God is all, always feels like it's the best of times, it's the worst of times, because you need it, but sometimes it rips stuff back and exposes things that you're like, I don't like looking at that. And I have felt this Hebrews 4 even last night. I'm laying in bed, Debbie's sound asleep, I'm trying to watch a little bit of the Olympics, but I'm thinking about the sermon. I'm thinking about the service. I'm thinking about the Hancocks. I'm thinking about what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it. I'm thinking about the fall. I'm thinking about everything that's going on. I'm thinking about the church. I'm thinking about the building. I'm thinking about who's connected and who isn't. I'm just thinking. And Deb's got this piece of palette that I often mock her for because she's seriously into the crafts. And she takes things that I think are worthless and usually mean I've got to work And she turns them into these beautiful works of art. And hanging up on the wall is this piece of palette all painted up. And here's what it says. Rest in the Lord. And I'm laying in bed, tossing and turning, thinking about all these things. And I spy that thing dimly through the shadow of a TV lit bedroom. And I see rest in the Lord. And I I could not get that phrase out of my mind. And after about 15 minutes of thinking about rest in the Lord, it was like a voice said to me, hey, big fella, why don't you give it a shot? (laughs) Rest in the Lord. And I was like, oh, yeah. Really makes sense if you live it and obey it. And so I did just that. And so this is what our passage is going to do for us this morning. So 1 Timothy 6, notice at the end of verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, teach and urge these things. Now, verse 3. If anyone, doesn't matter who they are, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the, now notice what what they do not agree with. Number one, with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's number one. Number two, and the teaching that accords with godliness. So if anybody teaches you anything other than this, something's wrong. And he tells you what's wrong in verse four. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So he's proud and he's really mindless. He he doesn't know what he's talking about. 
Notice this, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. Now notice the gravity of this, who are depraved in mind. If you remember the word depraved, that shows up in Romans chapter one. When you're depraved, you've really hit rock bottom in how you see God. And so Paul is saying, Those that get away from the words of Jesus and that which accords to godliness are on their way who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And here's what this depravity and this deprivation leads to. He sums it all up in this. Imagining, concocting ideas, using words to create systems and write books and all this stuff that godliness is a means of gain. That's the false teaching. That any type of thing where godliness is a means to something for your gain, that's that's from the devil. Now notice what he goes on and says then. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now notice the level to which Paul brings this contentment. Verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now that's pretty simple stuff. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then he sums it all up. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, those who desire to be rich, those who imagine godliness with some sort of gain, it is through this craving that some have noticed this, wandered away from the faith. They didn't, they didn't just drop off from it. They, you notice that this is a gradual thing. They, they wandered off. They wandered away from the faith and the result of wandering off, of not being able to recognize false teaching was they pierced themselves with many pangs. And that's the exact same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 24 when he talks about labor pain. Just these waves of pain, these waves of hurt that come over you. And so this is how he talks about false Teachers. So number one, very quickly here, he gives us a warning about or a warning against false doctrine. Okay, Charles Spurgeon put it this way. There is nothing under heaven I can conceive more liable to lead men astray than, notice this, than a perverted gospel. He says that's a truth perverted is genuinely, general, generally worse than a doctrine which all know to be false. Because, you see, there's a reason why we say it's, the, it's the, uh, the little pebble in your shoe that takes you down and not the boulder. Because I can see the boulder. I can see the boulder coming. It's, it's that little thing that I don't notice that I trip over and fall on my face. Or it's that little pebble in my shoe that annoys and annoys and annoys and annoys and eventually opens up a blister and then can get infected and all these things. I can, I can see what I know to be false. It's these perverted, twisted truths. And, and I'll give you an example of this. The biggest trouble I ever got in as a pastor was a number of years ago, I taught an adult Sunday school class and I started the class by reading 
a, a section of something to the people. And, and there were words like saved and born again and confession and repentance and all these types of things in what I read. And so then I asked the class, how many of you agree that what I just read was the gospel? And more than 50% of the people present put their hand up. And then I informed them that I had just read the opening four paragraphs from the Jehovah Witness Watchtower website that you can find right now today on their website. Well, I found out that people don't like to be embarrassed like that. But they got caught with hearing certain key words and thinking, well, if those key words are in it, then it must be truth. And you need to realize, when Satan came to Eve, what did he do? He gave Eve a whole lot of truth with a little bit of error. And everything went south. See, she'd have spotted the lie but he played word games with her. And this is what false teachers will do. This entire letter of 1 Timothy is a cautionary one. It's Paul going, watch out, stand guard, warn, expose, point out, protect, teach, instruct, reprove, rebuke, disciple, set up, appoint. It's put theology in action. It's how a church and how a group of Christians should think and act and treat each other and how we should function before God. You see, here's the question. Am I... Are we, as professing Christians, willing to do whatever it takes to obey Jesus? Will you and I do whatever it takes to obey Jesus? Now notice the end. Not to win him, but because he has won us. That's the difference between imagining godliness with gain and godliness with contentment is great gain. It's where I will do anything to obey Jesus because he's won my heart, not because I'm trying to manipulate someone that's bigger and stronger with more power than me to make life go the way I want it to go. And don't you look at me like you don't think that. Because every one of us is tempted. Whether Paul's warnings in 1 Timothy to his hymn of praise in chapter 3, his declarations of worship, Paul keeps coming back over and over again that this is the real gospel and anything else is false. But notice how he describes that false doctrine, right? Anyone that leaves the word, the sound words of Jesus, and anyone who does not teach you what accords with godliness... Now, sound instruction to which Paul referred to is the glorious gospel. He talked about it in chapter 1, verse 11. It's what he sings about in chapter 3. It's what deacons and elders in chapter 3 are to know and teach and uphold and protect. It's the motivation for how we act and talk and care in chapter 4 and 5. But notice he also says, teaching that accords with godliness. I don't know if you realize this, but godly and godliness is talked about 23 times in the New Testament. To be godly, according to the New Testament, is to live for others. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. According to the Bible, to be godly is to repent from a heart of remorse. Again, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, But notice this, but because you were grieved into repenting, you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Here's the opposite. Whereas worldly grief produces death. To be godly is to live for peace. 
First Timothy chapter two. First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all over in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In 1 Timothy 2, women are to be godly. In 1 Timothy 3, the gospel itself is godly. The godly is to be spiritually fit, okay? Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. This is 1 Timothy 4. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. To be godly means to be at odds with the world. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, now here's a verse that I should say, I'd love to see this put on a coffee mug. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's your coffee mug. Take that one to work for you and put it on your desk. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. To be godly is to train, is to be self-disciplined, is to look for something and someone more lasting than this life. Listen to Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared to do what? Bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Why would we do this? waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, here's our motivation, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are, caveat, zealous for good works. So, how do you know a false teacher is teaching you false doctrine? Ultimately, they either ignore Jesus or they re-explain Jesus, or, and here's what is happening today, they cherry-pick his words. This is what happens. My Facebook feed gets trolled by this. If I put anything about uh, living a holy life, if I put anything about doctrine, if I put anything on my Facebook, I've got four or five people that love to get in there and tell me about how I don't have more stuff about how Jesus loves. Because Jesus loves and everybody got verses for me about how Jesus loves. But they focus, false teachers focus on Jesus' love as for your self-purpose or for your self-worth or for your self-image, making excuses for your choices and putting more premium on your circumstances than your cho choices. So the false teacher usually plays it out something like this. Oh, don't worry about that. That's just that you were born like that. Or the false teacher will say, oh, that's, that's just the way you are. Or the false teacher says, oh, you've had a bad life. Or, oh, you didn't have a father or a mother or friends or the right start in life. Whenever you make excuses, you know you're not thinking like God wants you to think. Romans 2.1 says, therefore thou art without excuse, O man. The publican and Luke 15 beats his breast, can't even lift his eyes to heaven, and he just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The thief on the cross, what does he say when this other thief is, is saying, look, Jesus, if you're all that, take us. He says, listen, we're here, and we deserve to be here. But he hangs here innocently, and what does he, all he can muster is, Lord, would you remember me? You see, there was no more excuses there was no more, well, Lord, I know I'm not good, but if you understood my life, you'd understand why I'm not good. That's a false gospel. 
And so Paul gives us further clues. Number two, he gives us the character of false teachers. Notice verses four and five. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He's got an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicion and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. You see, who do you know like that? That offers you or talks a good game, but they're constantly at war with somebody. You see, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 6 about this guy named Simon the sorcerer. And he's a great case study of this. It says he believed and he was baptized, but he was a man of influence. He was a man of money and he liked it. And he saw Peter and and the guys come in and they're starting to bless people and they're getting the Holy Spirit. And Simon looks at this and he goes, that's pretty cool. I'd like to get me some of that. So he goes up to Peter and he says, listen, how much, why don't I give you some money and you just tell me what I need to give you. And so you give me that power so I can go start praying the Holy Spirit. And what does Peter say to him? Peter basically says, listen, you're not saved at all. You're a false teacher. And you need to go pray that you don't end up where you go, where you deserve to be. Again, guys, it's political correctness in the book of Acts does not exist. This is how Paul deals with this. In fact, I found this poem this week, which is why we need to be so careful. He says, it says this, watch your thoughts, they become words. Jesus said, right out of the heart, a man speaks. It says, watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. Watch your character because it becomes your destiny. That's the false teacher. Now, Paul gives us a better, fuller picture in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, But understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness... So they look like, and they, they, they kind of talk to, but deny its power. So they say, oh, listen, yeah, God can do anything, but since he really can't, let's just live this way. Now Paul sums it up, avoid such people. They have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. And so you'll notice a theme, money, pride, greed, and pleasure. You'll see that as the character of all your false teachers. They've got money, Money is on the mind, pride is on the mind, greed is on the mind, pleasure. Now, you got to be careful because some people think, well, a a false teacher will know because they're going to be all about sex. Now, listen, many are, at the very least, privately. But most of our false teachers today are much more subtle. So they'll give us a teaching that pleasure comes from doing something radical. Give up a few things, change a few things, and then you'll feel good about yourself. So again, they imagine that godliness comes with some sort of gain that's just for you. This is what John talks about in 3 John. He says to the church there, I have written something to the church. Now, he talks about a false teacher. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. 
So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. Notice this, and not content with that. There's a lack of contentment. He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church because there's no tolerance of the new tolerance. False teachers, if you don't go with them, they'll find a way to get rid of you. See, you and I are called by God's word to be in God's word so we can spot a false teacher and false teaching. And by the way, that's why you need elders and pastor teachers who will warn you and point out and protect you from false teaching and from false teachers. Why? Because God loves you. And by the Lord's grace, a faithful pastor loves you as well. So number three, the truth of the gospel. And you find that in six, seven, and eight. Now you got to look at that again, right? What does he say? I love Paul's simplicity. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And then he says, now in case you don't get that, let me break it down for you. For we brought nothing into the world and we can't take nothing out of the world. So it's like Job, right? Naked I came in, naked I'm leaving. I, I arrived in a birthday suit, I'm leaving in a birthday suit. And then he says, But if we have food and clothing with this, we will be content. (laughs) I really wanted to say that and go, amen. And I wondered, I think it would be more crickets than ever. Because we all know this is true, but all that statement makes everybody in this room uncomfortable. Let's just be honest. It makes us all uncomfortable. But you have to understand that that's the opposite of what he talked about in three to five Remember the disciples said, or Jesus said, sorry, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's everything with Jesus and nothing without him. Folks, now think this through. Heaven is heaven because Christ is there. That's what makes heaven, heaven. People who want heaven heaven want to see Jesus, right? Why would you want to be in heaven if you don't want to be like Christ, if you don't want to be with Christ, and you don't trust Christ to do and live like he tells you to? Why would you want to be with him for eternity if you've got a problem with how he tells you and I to live? If I have a problem with someone like that, I don't want to be around them. Unless I think they've got something that I would like to have and I think I can control them and manipulate them to give me what I want. Then I might find a way to tolerate them. Which, by the way, is what the rich young ruler tries to do in Matthew 19. So again, you have to see this contentment contentment. Remember the songs I quoted earlier? I can't get no satisfaction. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Jesus speaks the words of Jesus. Those that accord with the sound words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 5, 6, and 7. Church, listen to me. Basically, Jesus says, don't let the culture determine your spirituality. And what I mean by that is I read just recently, I was sharing with my elders on Wednesday night, uh, Barna and, and I think it's Josh McDowell just did a very comprehensive study of pornography in America amongst young adults. Now here's the kicker. 56% of young adults said it is always wrong and sinful not to recycle. 32% said it's probably wrong not to watch porn. 
So how did we get to a place where recycling is more a thing not to do than watch porn? I'll tell you how. False teaching and false teachers. Where we're arguing over all types of things of the environment and not dealing with what's right in front of us. We don't let social experiments turn spiritual. Turn always and only to God's word and to Jesus' example and simply live a godly life. You see, you want to talk about living godly? Jesus says in Matthew 5 to 7, turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile, and not to have two of something, let alone seven of it. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about being content and that not being content leads to anxiousness and fear. And I find it funny how much of the New Testament also tells us to be content and not to be anxious. And after a lengthy discussion on this, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 3 to be content with our wages. Paul tells us in that famous verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Everybody knows that, but notice the rest of it. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Because my value and my identity is only found in Jesus Christ. To the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul puts it all in perspective and he actually undoes one of the most misused coffee cup verses in the entire Bible. Where Paul says, not that I am speaking of a need. So get this church. He says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to do without and be content. I know how to abound. So you see these radical books that are being written that says if you're going to do something radical for Jesus, sell everything, be ashamed of the fact that you have possessions, be, be embarrassed by the fact that you were born in Canada, the United States, and you're the 1% of the wealthy. That's not the Bible. The Bible says I've learned how to be content when I don't have anything and I've learned how to be content when I have the riches of God given to me because I don't view it as some serious, stupid way to manipulate God. He says in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and giving it to God and hunger and abundance and need. Then he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Basically, that verse means I know how to live a godly life in whatever place of the planet God has called me to. That's what it means. The writer of Hebrews sums it up, contentment, this way. Keep your life free from the love of money. Does that sound familiar? And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. You see, here's how you know if you're content with your riches, St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. If it was all taken from you, would you say, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus? Or would your life fall apart? See, this is what it means. That's the difference between false teaching and the real gospel. Our contentment is found in Jesus. And so finally, verses 9 and 10, there's a warning against, and this is my pet peeve in life, 
a contractual gospel. Notice how Paul concludes, but those who desire to be rich. (laughs) Now, I don't think if I asked you to put up your hands, those of you here that desire to be rich, I don't think I got any suckers willing to know. Yeah, all right, I'll put my hand up and let Steve see it. All right. But if we were honest, how many of you would be honest and say, but I do desire to be comfortable. I do desire, and some of you are shaking your head at me. We want our life to go our way. We want Jesus and then a good life. We want our marriage to be good. We want our kids to turn out right. We want our job to feel right and pay right for relationships to be right. We want our health to be right. We want our church to be right. We want the government to like us and we want to simply have our Jesus and then have our life the way we like it. In fact, I would say the Church of Canada likes country music Jesus. Yeah, you can laugh. It's a great sell, right? Country music Jesus. Come to Jesus. You get your dog back, your truck back, your wife back, usually in that order. The problem with all this thinking is that like the songs that we know, no satisfaction, I can't find, you won't get satisfaction and you still won't find what you're looking for. You got to find your contentness and satisfaction with Jesus. Remember Jesus with the woman by the well? And he says, if you drink from the water I will give you, you'll be eternally satisfied. And she still thinks in terms of life. Well, give me some of that water because then I don't have to come here and work anymore. He goes, honey, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm offering me to you. Remember Jesus who said he who loses his life will find it, but he who tries to keep it will lose it? I find it amusing that the the role of the most false teachers today that will infect you in this church is what I call cherry-pick Jesus. So we love verses like Matthew 7, Oh, judge not, lest ye be judged. We love Matthew 11, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We love the Jesus who talked to the woman caught in adultery in John 8, Neither do I condemn thee. But we forget the sentence, the end of the sentence. But go and sin no more. We forget verses like Matthew 10, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Or Matthew 19 to the rich young ruler, sell all you have, leave your job and follow me. Or Matthew 15, love me more than brother or sister or husband or wife or son or daughter. You see, false teachers love to present a version of Jesus. They've got UFC Jesus, there's Miracle Jesus, there's Take Charge Jesus, there's the Feed Me Jesus, there's the Tell Me I'm Wonderful Jesus. But what about the You're a Sinner Jesus? What about the Jesus that tells you you can't help yourself? What about Jesus who says you need to change? What about the Jesus who says over and over again, money is not the solution to your problems? That was the rich young ruler. That was Felix and Festus and King Agrippa. And what about those in Matthew that made that excuse? I bought a cow. I married a wife. I bought some land. Let me bear my dad. Then I'll come follow you. What about John 6? Those who said, feed us, Jesus. But now put them against guys like Zacchaeus. Who when they came to Christ said, money no longer has a hold on me anymore. Or Matthew, the tax collector. Or Barnabas, who sells everything he has and lays it at the apostles' feet. Or Chloe, who opens up her home and allows a church to be established there. And countless others who gave up everything or something simply to have Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. 
Paul warns Timothy and wants him to warn the Ephesian church, and this is his word. So it's, thus says the Lord to you and I, money cannot and will not satisfy. In fact, even when you attain what you've always wanted, you immediately start to worry about how to keep it, maintain it, or not become dissatisfied. Ask me about my new car. Always wanted a new car. Finally got my new car. And now I have more sleepless nights about my new car. Because now I got to maintain it and I got to keep it because I got to pay on it now because I'm in debt and all these things. And I was at the conference and one of our speakers needed a vehicle. And so it's like, okay, Lord, this car has got to be yours and not mine. So I pulled out my key and I said, here, have my car. And so he goes off and he spends the day and he picks up some things and he comes back to me and he says, listen, where did you rent your car? I said, it's not a rental. It's my car. And he looks at me and he goes, how old is it? I said, it's almost two years old. He goes, I got to tell you something. Like your car is freakishly clean. And he didn't mean it as a compliment. He was telling me I have a problem. And I probably should go to some sort of agency that says, I'm a clean freak and I've got a problem. And I've had more anxiety about a car. All I ever wanted was a new car. Then I got it. And now I'm just trying to figure out how to keep it. And every one of you has something like that. Oh, you can all laugh at me because I'm the easy moving target up front here. But every one of you has it. Whether it's whatever it is, whether it's a car, a home, suit, clothes, holiday, a backyard, position, job, retirement plan, family, kids, friends, fame, power, or anything you can attain by money, you think that will make you happy and you think it will fulfill you and you are wrong. Sake of time, read James four and you'll figure that out jesus said in the sermon on the mount no one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or he will devote be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money so in conclusion just some questions for you to answer number one this is really a statement beware of anyone who makes it sound like you need more than jesus anyone who says to you listen do this and this and this and you get Jesus. Right off the bat, something should ring in your head. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. We're already condemned. He came into the world to save the world. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This is one of the statements I wanted to get to you more than anything. Soren Kierkegaard said this, the Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of uh, scheming swindlers. This guy must have been popular. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obligated to act accordingly. Your laughter says an awful lot. Amen. There you go. Look at that. I don't even need Mary Benedict here for that. The Bible is actually way simpler than any of us admit because when we admit it, now we're on to something. Second question, do you see how awesome God is? Scotty Smith describes the way of knowing if you're seeing God properly. Bad discipleship, giving God a place in our story. Good or gospel discipleship, taking our place in God's story. God is better. If you still haven't found what you're looking for, Jesus is who you're looking for. If you can't get any satisfaction, it's only in Christ alone. And so, let me ask you this, where is your treasure Where is your treasure this morning? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Christ says in Matthew chapter 6. 
Don Carson puts it like this. We actually, what we actually do reflects our highest priorities. And then finally, what needs to change in your life? What needs to change in your life? What takes up the most time in your life and mind? Eric Geiger, I put Steve actually in the MailChimp, put this as a blog. I'd encourage you to go there. He says this, For the Christian, consistently studying the scripture is what develops your character. Though the action of grabbing your Bible may feel small, the consistency makes a massive impact. Consistently loving and serving those around you gives an opportunity to share the reason for your hope. For the Christian, the mundane is sacred. That's why the false teacher that's always trying to sell you something radical is imagining godliness as gain instead of godliness with contentment as great gain. And how would your life look different if his reign and rule were to be exercised in your heart? And then this is my last question. And this one is probably the most important one. Who do you need to stop listening to? Stop reading their books or their blogs, their pot, and just start getting into God's word. And this can be anybody. It can be Perry Noble or Mark Driscoll, Tully and Chavigian, Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Jen Hatmaker, Rachel Held Evans, Joyce Meyer, Steve Furtick, and I can go on and on and on. But Perry Noble is a Southern Baptist pastor. I listened to Perry. I have read his books, who recently was defrocked and dethroned from his ministry because he's become an alcoholic. And so this is not me reading into his motives. Here was the public statement he made. And this is how you spot the false teacher. He said... In my obsession to get 100,000 people in our church, I turned to alcohol. You see what he did? He basically said, godliness, imagine that somehow godliness was gained. So his obsession, his God was 100,000 people. His God wasn't Jesus Christ. Because when he couldn't get to 100,000 people, he didn't turn to Jesus, he turned to a bottle. That's how you'll spot your false teachers. Because when you don't get, when your plan doesn't work, what do you do now? Go to God's word and to Christ. It's in Christ alone that you find contentment and satisfaction and purpose. And thank you for being patient. You got four weeks worth of sermon out of me. Hopefully next week I'll calm down. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. And Lord, I pray that every man and woman here would know that I'm not preaching at them. I'm preaching with them. Lord, I just want to be someone who accords with the sound words of Jesus Christ and Father who sees that godliness with contentment is great gain. Lord, I don't want the people to think they're in a contract with God. I don't want people to make excuses for their sin. And Father, I don't want the people here to be reading and listening and following people that teach that, whether subtly or right out in the face. Lord, may we be a people of God's word. And regardless who the man is that we love and adore, the woman is that we love and adore and we look up to, and it's not wrong to have spiritual heroes of the faith, but may we be Berean and search the scriptures to see if these things be so. And to realize that as this passage says, when we find this love of money, when we give into that snare and that temptation, we can wander off from the gospel and pierce our throughs with many pains. So for the one who hasn't found satisfaction this morning, the one who still hasn't found what they're looking for, the Christian that may be realizing, you know what? I got to make changes. Oh, give them courage that in Christ alone, it's always possible. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.